and uh, let's pray together for God's help. Dear Lord, we thank you for this extraordinary passage in your word, and we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might understand, and that we might glorify you and love you, follow you, that it might make a difference in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ernest Shackleton is one of my um, heroes. He made three journeys to Antarctica, the most famous of which was his ill-fated endurance expedition. Uh, After the ship was crushed by sea ice, uh, he marched his men to the edge of the ice, sailed them in three small boats to Elephant Island, sailed one of those boats with a small number of crew a thousand miles across the ocean to South Georgia, hiked across uncharted mountains, and finally rescued them all. And the newspaper advert for that expedition read, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. What is it that motivated those men to apply? What enabled them to endure the darkness and the danger? Nothing but the hope of future glory. Nothing else would motivate them through the suffering and trouble ahead. No wonder that advert, which may well be apocryphal, by the way, is such a favorite illustration for preachers. Because the Christian life is a life of suffering now and glory later. As Jesus said when he invited us to follow him on his own expedition, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. If we choose to follow Jesus, suffering is certain. Suffering just like our neighbours suffer who don't believe. Sickness and disease, a crisis in our career, a crisis with our children, a crisis with our cash, the pain of a broken relationship, the longing for a relationship that we don't have, the acute grief of a recent bereavement or the gaping hole of a bereavement from many years ago. But on top of those ordinary sufferings, we suffer because we follow Jesus too. Christians around the world persecuted by uh, Islamists or overlooked for aid by their government. Our children mocked at school for following Jesus, perhaps, or those in all sorts of professions, maybe some that you are in today, facing the real risk of exclusion and vilification because they publicly support biblical values in our country. Suffering is the reality. So what helps us to endure suffering? Nothing but the promise of future honour and recognition, the hope of certain glory. That is the theme of our reading today. And it was trailed in the last verse of last week's section. So verse 17. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You see, every single Christian is a child of of God. And if you're not yet a Christian person this morning, if you're still looking in from the outside, this is what is available to you, to be part of God's family. Have you realized that? Have you thought about that, if this is new to you? But if you're already a Christian, you're not simply a child of God, you're an heir of God. 
Our name is alongside Jesus' name on God's inheritance certificate. And there are two things listed on that certificate. Suffering now, glory later. So what is going to help us keep going through the suffering to the glory? What is going to help us keep on putting one foot in front of the other when actually all we want to do is stop? Three truths, I think, in this passage about what God says is really going on in the Christian person's life. Three realities to remember. First of all, a Christian is hoping eagerly for the new creation. Hoping eagerly for the new creation. Verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. So I want you to imagine back a couple of weeks the the crowd at the Grand National. The field is just about to come round the final corner. And those in the grandstand and those standing by the railings are peering round the corner, craning their necks to see who is going to lead the field and win? Who's going to win the sprint to the line? Who's going to get the glory? That is the picture in verse 19. The creation itself is standing on tiptoes, looking around the corner to see who's going to win and who's going to get the prize. But who are those winners? What will they win? Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So Paul takes us all the way back here to the very beginning of the story, to Adam and Eve in the garden. It was paradise on earth, wasn't it? But it didn't stay that way. Our first parents took the fruit and thorns and thistles grew and death invaded the world as God's judgment against sin. And ever since then, the world hasn't been the way it was supposed to be. Earthquakes, forest fires, floods, tsunamis, droughts, hurricanes, they're all signs of creation, frustration. A year or so ago, um, the American TV host, Ellen DeGeneres, if that's how you pronounce her name, posted this video online. She was standing at the end of her garden in California, and there was a raging torrent pouring down at the end of the garden in a creek that she said is almost always dry. And on the fifth year anniversary of the most severe drought in California's history, she shouted over the wind and the rain, we need to be nicer to Mother Nature because Mother Nature is not happy with us. Now, to be fair to Ellen, she has something of a point. Our relationship with the planet is broken. There is a sense in which the earth has feelings towards us. But the broken relationship with the planet didn't begin with the Industrial Revolution. It began with humanity's revolution against God. And the planet isn't angry with us. It's not punishing us for climate sins. No, the earth is not angry with us. The earth is longing for us, waiting for human beings to set it free from the decay caused by sin. But the surprise is that it's not human beings in general who will set the world free. The creation is not waiting for human beings to achieve net zero or for some sort of technological improvement. It is waiting for Christians to set it free and to bring it into the freedom of the new creation. Verse 21, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children 
of God. Creation is craning its neck, looking round the corner, because it can't wait to see us, the restored and rescued image bearers of God's glory that we were meant to be, because when we become that, we will bring the creation into the new creation, into its freedom. C.S. Lewis gets at this wonderfully in The Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe. Lucy is talking to Mr. Beaver and she says, but, but what about poor Mr. Tumnus? And Mr. Beaver says, the quickest way you can help him is by going to meet Aslan. Once he's with us, then we can begin doing things. Not that we don't need you too, for that's another of the old rhymes. And he says, when Adam's flesh and Adam's bone sits at Care Paravel in throne, the evil time will be over and done. So things must be drawing near now, says Mr. Beaver, now that he's come and you've come. You see, Narnia is waiting not just for Aslan to defeat the White Witch, but for the children to sit on their thrones as well. And in a similar way, the creation is waiting, not just for Jesus, but for us to reign with Jesus. It's waiting to be renewed and set free. And so we should be waiting too, hoping eagerly for the new creation. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So the creation is waiting, and as it waits, it groans in pain. And it may be that those groans grow louder, but we should never think that they are hopeless groans. A mother doesn't downplay the pain of childbirth, but she endures it because she knows it is a hopeful groaning. A new life is about to be born. And the groans of creation are groans like that, hopeful groans. And so as Christians, as we suffer, as we wait eagerly for the new creation, our groaning can be hopeful too. In a survey conducted by the youth charity Force of Nature, over 70% of young people said they felt hopeless in the face of the climate crisis. As many as 56% believe that humanity is doomed, and only 26% felt they knew how to contribute to solving the problem. There is an awful lot of hopelessness around. There is a whole narrative dominated by fear and guilt, and it may be that you feel some of that too. But Christians can be truly hopeful, freed, from guilt and fear, because the new creation begins with us. Verse 23, we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. You see, we're already God's children, but we haven't yet received our full inheritance. We're still waiting for these bodies of ours to be made new. Uh, I was chatting to my neighbor the other day um, on the way to swimming. We share lifts on the way to swimming lessons. And he told me, I said, oh, how's your day been? He said, oh, it's been all right. I'm actually having a fasting day. So oh, that's interesting. Why are you doing that? He's not a Christian. And he said, oh, I've, I've read that it's really good for you. Just like once, um, once a week, kind of a detox of your stomach. I've also started taking sort of the last 30 seconds of my shower as a cold shower. It's really good for your skin and stuff like that. And he's also, I think, doing Pilates and stretching alongside his running and his cycling, which he enjoys. And he says, um, 
it's not just cardio that's good for you. You've got to stretch so that when you're older, your body is less prone to injury and stuff like that. I'm sure he's right on all of that. But no matter what he does, no matter what anyone else does, these bodies of ours are decaying. Some of you are more aware of that than some of the others. But all of them will die in the end. And yet there is hope, not of a disembodied spiritual existence, but of a real, physical, new creation. Verse 23, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. How do you keep going for glory in the midst of suffering now? First of all, we remember that as Christian people, we are hoping eagerly for the new creation. These bodies are only our temporary bodies. This world is only our temporary home. One day we will live in the new creation, fully redeemed, fully renewed, forever. And we wait patiently for that. But that is not all that keeps us going. We don't just hope in the midst of suffering. We are also helped through it because a Christian second is helped by the prayers of the Holy Spirit. Helped by the prayers of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> so the first two paragraphs zoom out from a Christian suffering to the, the big picture. And then these two little verses zoom in from the suffering that's going on all around us to something extraordinary that's happening inside of us, to God's help. Because we all experience weakness. It is part and parcel of being human. And because of our weakness, we're often left speechless when we pray. And yet Paul says we're not without help. Verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we ought to pray for. Now, as Christians, we know how to pray, but we don't know what we ought to pray for. That's what he's saying. Now, in a sense, we do know what we should pray for. We pray, your kingdom come, things like that. But when it comes to what that big picture, your kingdom come, looks like in my own little life, I'm often left speechless. I just don't know what to pray. I'm confused and I'm ignorant. Not so the Spirit of God, verse 26 again. We do not know what we ought to pray for but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. I wonder if you've sometimes sat awestruck at the theatre as you see what looks like an ordinary kind of stage be transformed into all sorts of configurations. And you just can't figure out how it works, but nor can you deny the extraordinary results. The only way you'd ever figure it out is if someone took you on a backstage tour. These two little verses, I think, are a little like a backstage tour of reality. It's not about the Spirit helping us to pray, which he does, by the way. Now, what is happening here is we are being shown that the Holy Spirit is praying for us independently of us. God is praying to God. And not somewhere far away in heaven, but here in our hearts. And so underneath the groaning of creation, verse 22, are the groanings of Christians, the church, verse 23. And underneath those groans are the groans 
of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is longing for the new creation. He cannot wait for these decaying bodies of ours, for this broken world of ours to be fully and finally redeemed. He's praying for that. And if he's praying for it, of course those prayers will be answered. How could God not answer God? It's just a little glimpse behind the scenes, but it's a fabulous one. And so when the storms of suffering rage, we are helped by the prayers of the Holy Spirit. We may not see that reality, but just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. So we keep going through suffering now until glory later. And what's more, as we are hoping eagerly, as we are helped, thirdly, we are held securely in God's good plan. Verse 28 to 30, we are held securely in God's good plan. Verse 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So a bit of a fridge magnet verse, isn't it? It's a great verse to remember. If you've never memorized any Bible verses, this would be a good verse to start with, perhaps. Maybe you've used it yourself to comfort a Christian friend who's suffering. Maybe someone has shared it with you when you've been going through the mill yourself. But there's a danger with a verse like this that it sounds trite and shallow, doesn't it? Just remember, God is working for your good as you have this really serious disease. Don't forget that God has got a good plan for you behind this redundancy or behind your struggles with your child's special needs or behind your unwanted singleness or those difficulties in your marriage. Don't forget God is working for your good. It can sound trite and suffering in the midst of acute pain or the debilitating struggles of a chronic suffering. The idea that God has some sort of vaguely good plan behind the scenes might not help. It might make it worse. Now what we need to understand is, is what is the what is that plan? What is the good plan behind it? Verse 28 again. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What is God's purpose? Verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's been called by many people the golden chain of salvation, the golden chain of salvation. It stretches all the way back from eternity past, all the way to eternity future. And each unbreakable link is forged together forever by the eternal will of God. Let's look at the chain, the links in this chain. First, first of all, those he foreknew, those he foreknew. That does not mean that God looked down the tunnel of time from the beginning and he saw what decisions we would make in the future. And he saw me. He said, oh, Andy O'Brien, I know that at some point in the future he's going to choose to follow Jesus and so I better connect him up to the other links in the chain. God didn't foresee what was going to happen. God foreknew it. He knew us before time began. And he, he knew us for relationship. God chose us for relationship before time began, those he foreknew. Second, he also predestined. Do you know the wonderful mundane illustration of this extraordinary Bible doctrine? It is the 156 bus. 
which is the bus I get more than any other. Before it even leaves the depot, it has been predestined to go to Vauxhall, unless it's going the other way, in which case it's been predestined to Wimbledon. But God has predestined it. Sorry, the person in the control room has predestined it. God has predestined us for our destination. What is our destination? Verse 29, it is to be like Jesus. It is to be part of Jesus' family. It is to reign over the restored creation with Jesus. That's where we're heading. How do we get there? Third, those he predestined, he also called. This is the moment in history when God personally, when, when we personally put our faith in Jesus Christ. So maybe we heard the gospel preached in a church. Maybe we were told it by friends. Maybe our parents patiently told it to us week by week as we were growing up. Maybe we suddenly decided to start reading the Bible. Maybe we read a Christian book or watched a video online. It doesn't matter how we heard the call. What matters is that we responded to it. We were called. Fourth, those he called, he also justified. This is the great theme of the book of Romans. We've been exploring this over the last few months. God makes us right with himself because Jesus died in our place. Once we were enemies of God, facing God's just anger and indignation against us. But then we put our trust in Jesus who died in our place. And as we remembered in that great hymn last week, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. We're justified. And so we will be finally glorified. So what we've done, we've gone from eternity past, those he foreknew, to eternity future, he also glorified. But just notice, Paul talks about the future in the past. That is how certain he is. So our glorification to be more like Jesus, to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus, to rule over the new creation with him, the redemption of our bodies, it is as good as done. God's plan for Christians isn't like a, unit, a university course where a certain number of people sign up and a certain proportion drop out. There are no dropouts in God's plan. Every single one who begins will come around the corner to win the last prize, the final prize. We are held securely in God's good plan. Hoping, helped, and held. Those three wonderful realities are what Christians really are. They are what keep Christians going through suffering now to glory later. And so as we reach the climax of this chapter, the highest pinnacle of the whole first half of the letter, there's one simple final lesson for us all to remember. A Christian is all of these things, hoping, helped, and held, and so a Christian can be certain even when we suffer. Certain even when we suffer. Uh, sadly, we have run out of time, really, to dig into these beautiful verses at the end of the chapter. If we had another week, there'd be a whole uh, sermon on them. But in many ways, they speak for themselves. Listen, first of all, to what Christ has done for you, verses 31 to 34. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. 
Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. It's as if we stand in a courtroom and Satan stands in the prosecutor's place and Satan has a charge sheet as long as his arm and he reads it out for hours and hours and hours and every single charge on that charge sheet is true. And God turns to Satan and he says, you're too late. You're in the wrong place. Look at those scars on my son. He paid for every one of my children's sins. He turns to Satan and he says, how dare you stand in my courtroom and tell me to throw the book at them? Get out. If you're trusting Jesus Christ today, first of all, look at what he has done for you. It may be very hard, but we can be certain even when we suffer because we are certain that Christ died for us. And so there will be glory later. But don't just look at what he's done. Look at how much he loves you. Verses 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the Christian life might sometimes feel like we are sheep in a queue to an abattoir. It's a far cry from the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. But nothing, no one, nowhere, never, not our greatest fears, not our strongest enemies will ever separate us from God's love. We will come through on the winning side. We can endure through the darkest trials. We can be sure that we will receive honor and recognition in case of success. Not for our success, but because he was successful for us. Christian, God loves you. Be certain when you suffer. And if you're not yet trusting Jesus Christ today, can I just ask you, what is holding you, keeping you back?